Welcome to Acting Up, an hour of resistance radio that explores the movements that made us, drawing from the activist archives through to the voices of resistance today. I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. My name's Em, I'm your host for today and I'm here with my co-host Megan. How are you going today? I'm very well. Looking forward to a good show. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really special one. That's right. We are continuing the 45 Years of Creative Resistance, our retrospective history series, looking back at the 45 years of Friends of the Earth when we've been mobilising communities, resisting the oppressive forces of patriarchy to nuclear racism and transforming our future towards a more just world for all. That's right. And we've been bringing you lots of interesting stories over the past few months and We are coming towards the end of our series, so today on the show we're looking at an interesting topic and that one is climate change campaigning and particularly thinking about the idea of climate justice. And the topic of climate justice has really come to the forefront in the last year or so with the huge rise of Extinction Rebellion all over the globe and the pressure that they've been putting on governments and big businesses to take action on climate change. So it's a it's a pretty hot topic and it also kind of has a feeling as if it was a new conversation. Um But Friends of the Earth has been thinking about it uh, for a long time. We've been campaigning on climate change and climate justice uh, through the climate justice lens since the early 2000s. Our current paradigm right now is hard to imagine without without climate change and the climate crisis. However, the urgency around this issue has only just started to rise recently. So today we'll be having some really interesting chats with people who have been involved in climate campaigning at Friends of the Earth over the years in all its various forms, from climate justice tours in the mid-2000s, supporting Pacifica communities on the front lines of climate change issues to direct action against some of the biggest polluters. And also on the show, we're going to be hearing from some current campaigners who have been influenced by FOE's legacy in the climate campaigning space. So Friends of the Earth has a number of different collectives that are dedicated to fighting for climate justice through many different lenses from climate and energy fronts. And before we get into it, I just wanted to give a quick definition of climate justice. So you're probably familiar with the term climate change in these times, but here's Friends of the Earth's take on climate justice. So Friends of the Earth believes it's essential to address the social issues such as disproportionate use of resources, inequality and colonisation while responding to climate change. Historically, our climate justice campaigns have forged the agenda on the human rights dimensions of climate change. We've supported the rights of those at risk of climate-induced displacement as well as exposing the social impacts of carbon offset schemes in countries in the global south. 
It's going to be a really big show. We are covering the history of our campaigns and the politics of the time over 45 years of campaigning here in so-called Australia, what we did and why it's still important. That's all coming up after this community service announcement. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one at 3CR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday. Black and deadly sound, please share. Community radio 855 on the AM dial. Point of the people, the people. Black and deadly sound, please share. Community radio 855 on the AM dial. Point of the people, the people. We are looking back at Friends of the Earth's 45 Years of Creative Resistance today with a focus on climate action. My name's Em. I'm your host for today here with my co-host, Megan. That's right. And climate change and climate action is a central focus of the environment movement today. But we're wondering when Friends of the Earth hit the scene on thinking about and acting on climate. So joining us by phone is Steph Long, who started on the climate campaign at Friends of the Earth back in 2001. Steph, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem at all. So starting us off today, can you tell us where your story at Friends of the Earth began? So what drew you to climate campaigning in the early 2000s? Um, I got a really fantastic chance to go to an international conference that Friends of the Earth International were running on ecological debt. And in that big, amazing conference with all of these activists from across the world, they started to talk about climate debt. Like, what is it that all of the industrialised, mass-carbon-producing produ- mass countries of the world, what is the debt that we owe the global south for the impacts of climate change as well as the exploitation of resources. And I just found that whole thing so inspiring and fascinating and then um, got to come back to Australia. And really, um, really fortunately, there was a paid position going at Friends of the Earth at the time as a national climate justice campaigner. And I was really lucky to get that role That's great. And so obviously you came in around the 2000s and we've been speaking to campaigners from, you know, the 70s, 80s and 90s, but we haven't really spoken to anyone about climate change, although we've heard mentions of it. So do you think that that was sort of this time when folks started really substantially getting into climate change action or they were already in that space before the 2000s? Yeah, there was was a really um, proactive campaign that I heard about in Victoria um, where a group of activists from Friends of the Earth Melbourne were um, campaigning against, I think, a, a gas field or a, some kind of gas exploitation work that was that was going on in Victoria at the time. And that was really the first time that I was aware of of people getting active around 
climate justice that, you know, because it was really at that point in time, heaps of people were talking about gas as this beautiful transitional fuel that was going to get us out of coal and into transition us into the glorious arms of renewable energy. So at the time, it was pretty unpopular for Friends of the Earth to be jumping up and saying, no, actually, all fossil fuels are bad. Gas is no better than anything else. And we need to not just make ourselves some kind of plateau from one fossil fuel to another, but really we've got to stop our fossil fuel dependence and, and get into renewables. So that was that was immediately before I got involved mm-hmm. in the campaign. But I think that was the first time, and that was the work, you know, that Tristy Fairfield was doing with a, a really good crew of people in Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Great, and we're going to have Tristy on the show later so we can chat to her yeah. about that. So... In terms of, you know, I guess, um, you know, Friends of the Earth always kind of operates at the micro and then the national and then at that international level. And it's really interesting hearing you speak about that international conference. How do you feel Friends of the Earth is positioned, you know, to work on the international level, given our kind of structure and federation? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, So uh, really, I think that from a principle or value perspective, South Australia is really well placed, and even the smaller so groups, really well placed to work on micro, very local issues, but from a, a globalist perspective. Because um, basically, if we don't, if we don't connect up all of these extremely localized campaigns of resistance and transformation, we're not going to have the the level of change that we need. Like we need an amazing global change um, to ripple across the world so that everyone has a right to a clean and a fair and a safe environment that they have autonomy over, that they share equally with their neighbours and with all of the other creatures and beings in the world. So that's that's really like fundamentally a global vision that gets enacted locally. Mm, absolutely. And what you were saying just then reminded me, actually, last night um, I was watching a little documentary that was found in the faux archives from the climate justice tour in t- 2004 um, that you were obviously involved with coordinating. And, yeah, some of the speakers were touching on that kind of, you know, bringing the local issues and the global perspective. So do you want to tell our listeners out there about what the climate justice tours were all about? Yeah, that is it. That was probably the most important piece of work I did for Australia. Um, was was really, really very tough to be part of it. So we got um, a chief from Samoa and a school teacher from Tuvalu, and an oil activist from Nigeria. Who had they, the three of them had never met each other before, and we got them to come to Australia and organise all of these speaking gigs up the east coast, um, doing a whole range of things. But one thing that I found so eye-opening from that was that people from completely different parts of the world living in countries where they'd never heard of the other before. So, like, we had to get the map out so that Nemo could see... Nemo was from Nigeria, where he could see where um, Suela from Tuvalu lived because he'd never heard of that country before. She'd never heard of Nigeria before. But, you know, like within a couple of hours, they immediately understood each other's story about people that were just wanting to have control of their future, wanting their community to know that they were going to be safe. Um, so that was really a, an amazing experience for me to see people come together and join each other and understand almost immediately the, the level of shared experience that they had. 
Mm, absolutely. And it seems like, you know, we take for granted in our current perspective the way that we have a bit of a, um, a kind of global understanding of climate change and the way it does impact people all over the world. Do you feel like that was some of the work that you were doing as part of that climate justice tour, bringing that perspective? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was almost the number one priority was just to change the debate on climate change and the conversation on climate change, which up until that point was really science-based and really ecological-based, which is important. But our whole purpose was really to also expand that story to be about this is about human rights, this is about social justice, this is about equity, um, to make this an amazing human story as well as a really important science and ecological story. It was really fixed at being a very technical, really detailed scientific debate and we also needed to make it something that was about, no, 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 this is about the way we live. This is about who we want to be as people and what and how people want to have control over their future. Mm, absolutely. It's so important to bring that human lens that people can connect with to these issues. Um, we might have to leave it there. We're running out of time, but thanks so much for joining us, Steph. And coming yeah, up welcome. next, um, after we're going to take a short break, we're actually going to be speaking with Wendy Flannery, who um, said that she was recruited to Friends of the Earth by you and your work in the Climate Justice Tour, so it'll be great to get her perspective on things too. <laughs> great. Thanks so much. Thanks. This is 3CR. Don't go away. Just going to go to a quick community service announcement. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, helping, giving us a chance to do this it's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now hopefully it goes, it keeps going you know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners We can't blame everything on the external so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family if you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You're listening to 3CR. This is Acting Up, and we're doing a history series of Friends of the Earth and the work we've done campaigning over the last 45 years. Now, throughout the series, we've heard mentions of climate awareness within the organisation through the 70s and 80s. But today we're looking into when FOE began a concerted effort to raise the profile of how climate change is impacting people and planet and the desperate need for climate action. And on the phone, we have Wendy Flannery, a Brisbane-based climate frontlines campaigner. How are you going there, Wendy? Oh, well, thanks, yes. Mm-hmm. 
So we've just been talking with Steph Long about the climate justice tours and her work with Friends of the Earth Australia in the early 2000s. So you got involved with Friends of the Earth through Steph. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that's correct. Um, I had actually been uh, doing some work at the United Nations in New York, uh, helping to set up an NGO. And uh, during that time, I actually did some uh, climate advocacy uh, with some of the uh, ambassadors from the Pacific and one from um, uh, the Indian Ocean. Uh, so I had become quite involved in the uh, climate justice work already. Uh, and when I returned to Brisbane, uh, someone uh, put me in touch with Steph because she was setting up uh, a panel. Uh, someone had just come through, a Canadian actually, who had been to a uh, Pacific Conference of Churches meeting uh, in Kiribati in the Pacific where they came out with the very first Pacific Declaration about climate change. And so uh, she was setting up uh, an event with a panel and she invited me to be on the panel. And once I found out that uh, uh, she was involved in working with Foe to uh, uh, highlight the voices of Pacific uh, in the climate justice area, uh, I became involved and I'm still hanging on there. Great. And so, like you mentioned, so your work has centred around raising the profile of Pacific Islander voices in Australia. So how have you done that over the years? Uh, well, we've done it in quite a lot of ways. Um, we've been able to bring people here from the Pacific for a number of things. Um, uh, you know, in Steph's time, uh, the um, Friends of the Earth Australia uh, brought, to, uh, brought here a woman named Ursula Rakova, who set up a program in Bougainville, Papua New Guinea, to relocate people from one of the four atoll groups off the east coast of Bougainville uh, in Papua New Guinea, the Carteret Islanders. And so uh, Steph organised a speaking tour with Ursula in uh, 2007, uh, and they became an affiliate of of Australia at that time, and... Um, I've, since about 2009 or 10, I've been the link with that project, continues to be the link for, uh, we brought Ursula here again in 2016. Uh, I, also again, actually in 2010, we did an event here in Brisbane for the, um, uh, the Earth Charter movement. We joined with them and brought several people from the Pacific to be spokespeople for that event, the Earth Charter event here in Brisbane. But then we brought Ursula back for a, a speaking tour in 2016. And then in 2018, she was invited by the Wome Adelaide Festival mm. to be on a panel there in, uh, for the festival. And so uh, we had events in Sydney, Melbourne, and other, uh, another one in Adelaide in preparation for uh, her participation in the Wome Adelaide Festival. Mm. So that was just one example of um, uh, how things are moving. Of course, we've done lots of other things, but you uh, probably have other questions to ask. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess what you're saying there, it's showing how you've really been providing a, p a platform for frontline people to get an audience in Australia and kind of share those stories. So who do you think has been most influenced by those conversations? Well, it's hard to say, really, um, uh, you know, because we've worked with a lot of different audiences. Um, uh, some of them have been church-related groups. Uh, others, we've just we've worked with university students. Um, 
actually the um, uh, the, la- the last big event we did was last year with the University of Queensland with three women uh, who are in different departments at the University of Queensland. Uh, we uh, coordinated to put on uh, a big one-day event on human rights and climate change. And um, that attracted people from a wide range of backgrounds, actually, uh, people from academic backgrounds, but also, you know, uh, community advocates, um, some folks from churches, um, uh, Pacific, of course, you know, Pacific Islanders living here in Australia, and we were able to bring people from the Pacific as well. So that turned out to be um, a really landmark event as well. Mm. But um, I think the, as well as in Australia, um, I think two of the things that uh, I felt very good about were uh, actually getting people from here to the uh, the big UN meetings. So um, there's a, a Torres Strait elder here in Brisbane that we've done a lot of work with. Um, we actually had a tour uh, uh, to Cairns of two elders from the Torres Strait community here and uh, events in Brisbane as well and in, north of Brisbane with the, with the Torres Strait Islanders. And we were able to send uh, Auntie Rose Elu, a Torres Strait Islander, to Paris for the big climate negotiations. So we were very happy about that. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years later, we sent uh, a, a Papua New Guinean woman who's a very strong climate advocate here to the climate negotiations in Bonn, Germany. So we've been able to get those voices, you know, further afield than just uh, in Australia. Mm, That's absolutely fabulous. And, like, one of the things we've heard throughout um, our history series is Friends of the Earth's strength in being able to bring all sorts of people together, you know, faith-based, universities, unions, you know, people really from across the spectrum. So how... How has um, getting those people informed helped the, helped the people out on the on the islands? Well, so it's, it's a bit hard to say sometimes, you know, because um, and we have to continue advocating with our own government because one of the things that's been very clear to us, you know, and particularly I, th- I think in the last five years or so, that Pacific Islanders now are highly organised themselves. Um, we have links now with uh, PCAN, the Pacific Island Climate Action Network, which involves advocates from 10 Pacific Island countries, and they do a huge amount of work to get the Pacific voices into the international arena themselves. So, uh, you know, our goal would be to support groups like that and, you know, whatever which way we can facilitate uh, or, or support their voices getting out there, we'd like, we, we try to do. So, um, you know, uh, in, a, in one sense, the Friends of the Earth voice goes in the background and we, we try to get the, you know, the Pacific people to speak for themselves. And, you know, things have changed quite, in quite interesting ways in the Pacific with different, uh, leadership models. And so now, for example, you know, uh, in the United Nations system, the Pacific independent countries are called small island states. Well, they now call themselves large ocean states. <laughs> and so that's quite a, quite a dramatic para, uh, paradigm shift in terms of how people see themselves. Mm. 
Mm. And, you know, they say, okay, uh, you live in a continent, we live in the ocean. And so just because we have a small land mass uh, doesn't mean we're small because we have a large ocean mass. Mm. And and so much of our identity and our culture and everything else we do uh, is connected to our being ocean peoples. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. And so thinking back again, so, you know, the term climate justice, it's commonplace in the environment movement now. And, you know, I guess supporting frontline communities is something that people would put at the core of climate justice. So when you started this work back in the mid 2000s, did you think about your work in the context of being climate justice? Uh, I think I did because I'd already been involved in other kinds of social justice work for quite some time, you know, in a whole range of areas myself. Um, and um, actually the first uh, involvement I had with the whole environment and, and climate work in the Pacific was back in 1987, I think it was. Mm. Um, the, the, the World Council of Churches was preparing for uh, a big international conference on what they call justice, peace and the integrity of creation. And uh, at that time, uh, I was wor- based in the Pacific, working there, helping to set up a development uh, organisation and um, got to meet some very active Pacific women. And so we organised among ourselves to run two big um, regional uh, pre-conferences uh, for Pacific women in preparation for that big world uh, assembly, which was held in, in Korea. Mm. So... Um, and, and that was where I first really started getting into uh, the whole issue of, you know, the wider environment questions and, and how they're connected to, to justice. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's, it's great to hear about the longevity of this work and the support that's been ongoing. We might have to leave it there. We're just going to head to a song. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great to have you, Wendy. You're welcome. Thanks so much. This is 3CR. You're on Acting Up and we'll be back after this song.
Welcome back to Acting Up on 3CR. We are celebrating Friends of the Earth with a retrospective history series looking back at the movements that made us. Today on the show, we are talking about climate action and climate justice. Talking to some campaigners from over the years who've worked on these issues. This is Em, your host for today, here with Megan. That's right. And joining us now on the line is Tristy Fairfield. How are you going today, Tristy? Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. So your work with FOES Climate Campaigning goes back to the early 2000s. So can you describe for us what the public opinions on climate were at the time? Oh, look, I think it's fair to say there wasn't a particularly high level of knowledge at that time. There was a reasonable amount of work happening um, uh, in the scientific community and some of the other NGOs had done a little bit of work. Um, But I'd say the public understanding was reasonably low um, but then I guess that whole sustainability piece that had come out of the um, you know the early 90s maybe had some follow-through but certainly of course nothing approaching the um, awareness that there is now. Mm. And politically at the time obviously John Howard was the Prime Minister what was the kind of political climate for organising around environment issues in particular climate? Uh Look, I have to say, at the time, when Robert Hill was the Environment Minister, it seemed like it was really terrible. I mean, it seemed like it was um, oh, it's just an antagonistic environment. But looking back, it's probably a case of, um, you know, be, be careful what you wish for, because we wished for change and it just got worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard when it goes, um, you know, change in a different direction than you expected. Um, so on the phone earlier, we were just speaking with um, Steph Long, and she was saying how, you know, yourself and some other people in the Friends of the Earth Melbourne Collective were kind of one of the first uh, climate campaigns for Friends of the Earth, kind of late 90s, early 2000s, targeting um, some gas companies. So what was that kind of work that you were doing? Um, so we started the Climate Justice Collective pretty much. We've done some early work in the late 90s, um, just doing submissions into Senate inquiries and so forth. Um, and then I went over to COP6 at The Hague and I caught up with, obviously, Friends of the Earth International had their presence inside the event and so forth. And it was this sort of really, uh, the NGO sector was right in the tent, if you like, but there was a lot of activist groups outside the tent. They weren't allowed into the event. And because of the way Fellow Australia was in terms of its grassroots campaigning and its direct action focus, I tried to spend a fair bit of time with them. And that was um, predominantly a grassroots group called Rising Tide. And they were really focused on this idea of climate justice, the inequity of um, climate change impacts, the inequity of the global carbon budget having been largely used by developed countries to enable their industrial development and therefore leaving less of the carbon budget for developing um, or <clears throat> developing economies to you know to catch up. And then the developed world was putting all this pressure on the you know the so-called developing world um, to to leapfrog and to use different technologies. And they were really focused on the injustices of both the um, the carbon budget and the inequitable impacts of climate change. And that really fit in um, when I got back to Melbourne. Obviously, a lot of us saw that that really fit in with those um, those focus that social justice and environmental issues can't be separated. And that. I guess that really gave us the ability to know where foe could add value to the climate justice work, uh, sorry, the climate change work that was happening more generally. So ACF had a national liaison officer in Canberra who'd done a lot of the um, political level work. But apart from that, there was, there was certainly no climate change campaigner in any of the organisations. Mm-hmm. But 
we were able to say, well, this is what FOE does. We bring things to the grassroots and we focus on those social justice, that, that intersection between social justice and environmental issues. So then it was, um, I guess it just, it was clear to see what our place was in that whole climate um, change campaigning area. So it didn't take too long to get the um, climate justice collective happening because there was just so much um, enthusiasm and recognition that it was important work. So we, the Summerton campaign came a bit later. We started meeting in um, probably 2001 and... I went back through my diaries, Em and Megan, and, and and remembered all the people that were involved because it was it was quite a um, it was quite a big group. There was um, Alan Hoban, Daniel Varanoff, Mia Emanuel, Domenico, who I know you've spoken to, um, mm. Jess and her brother Ben, Carl Charica was involved and very impressive. And I look back now and um, the commitment of that group to come together regularly and create something out of nothing in this. Um, different messaging, different to the rest of what the environment movement was doing was, um, I don't know, it was, it was pretty um, formative and exciting. Um, but we certainly did a lot of things before the Summerton blockade. That was much later. We had forums and so forth, just trying to change that um, messaging around climate change from, as Steph said, from that science-based um, ecological impact only to that broader issue of equity. And... Can you remember back on what those messages were and what what actions you were taking to get those messages out? Um, yeah, look, there was various aspects. One is um, the different the differential of impacts, and I guess that's the same with most environmental justice issues that the um, the people who cause the problems often don't suffer the impacts of those um, issues. So as um, Steph and Wendy talked about, the inequitable impacts of climate change on the Pacific Islands compared with um, Australia, who was, you know, it seems um, ironic to say now, but we, we felt at that time that we weren't going to suffer the worst impacts of climate change. Clearly that's been shown to be dramatically wrong, but in terms of, um, in terms of we were causing the problem and our high per capita emissions compared with, say, the per capita emissions of of the Pacific Islands was definitely a message. Um, we talked a lot about that concept of contraction and convergence in terms of um, what's an equitable way to reach um, a stable climate and stable levels of greenhouse gas emissions. And that early work around the um, Australia's per capita emissions, I think, came out of the Australia Institute and Clive Hamilton's work. And so we really tried to push the issue of equity through a number of different lenses and so was doing a lot of um, work on ecological debt at that time around um, S11. So there was there was also, I guess, other things that we could hook on to in terms of the, the debt of the global north to the global south and so forth. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, we touched on before, you know, you were saying that um, publicly there wasn't really a public opinion about climate change, but when you started kind of putting some of these messages out there and getting more activated around climate justice, how did you feel that was received? Um, look, it depends on what aspect or when, because we did a few actions. We did one, um, we shut down Collins Street and dragged, you know, kayaks and various things through, down through Collins Street and Look, I don't remember it being particularly negative. Um, we did another one in St Kilda. We, we got a reasonable amount of media attention. And look, I, I can't you know remember what those stories said, but I certainly don't recall um, massive amounts of negative responses. 
We did do one um, in the Aston by-election. Uh, I think we blockaded. I can't remember what, what petrol station it was. Um, and we didn't blockade it. We just did a normal action. It wasn't anything um, terribly um, out there. But I remember that one didn't go down so well. But by and large, I don't recall. Um, and certainly with the people on the streets, you know, if, you, if you're doing an action, you're going up and down the streets with um, costumes and so forth. Um, I think it was more curiosity and what is this even about? What are you talking about? Mm. And, of course, now there's a very organised fossil fuel lobby that pushes back on actions like that and demonises activists in the media. Do you feel like there was an absence of that or it was just that what you were doing was new? Um, you, you know, oh, like... Yeah, the fossil fuel lobby wasn't um, was certainly powerful back then. In fact, even before I'd started in climate change, there was a whole book about the carbon wars and about how effective the fossil fuel lobby had been in shutting down action on climate change. So that was in the late 90s. Um, I think that happened more at a political level than at a media sort of public-facing level. I think where those sectors were really clever was that they 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 operated more behind the scenes, and so I think they were probably more. Um, uh, busy in Canberra doing some of that behind the scenes lobbying and necessarily playing it out us against them um, uh, in the media. Mm, absolutely. And we are going to have some young campaigners who are, you know, just engaging with the climate movement at the moment, coming from a very different context. So um, we're going to just chat to them at the end of the show to get their perspectives. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom that you'd pass on to current climate campaigners? Cool, that's a big call for me to be giving any current campaigners any advice. <laughs> Look, I just think that, you know... Um, Things have changed a lot, but not at all. But I just think the current generation of climate campaigners are doing a tremendous job. I couldn't, I wouldn't dare to offer them advice. <laughs> I just think, um, look, I think generally speaking, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? If people can, you know, focus on that um, grassroots activism and do it well, they're just um, changing, changing the discussions. And when I see in now I sort of work more in the corporate sector and government and I overhear the conversations about um, the activist movement and by and large it's, um, it's really positive. I think they've done a tremendous uh, service to the, to the campaign. Great. Well, thanks so much for that, Tristy, and thanks for joining us today. We are going to go to a quick break. Stick around after this. We're just going to go to some CSAs. You are on 3CR. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. 
Transitions Film Festival, February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Acting Up on 3CR. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday with this retrospective history series. Now, we could talk all day about Friends of the Earth's actions challenging the government or big polluters on their inaction to deal with the impending climate crisis, but we are fast running out of time. So to round up the show, we are joined in the studio by current climate current day climate campaigners, Anna Langford and Emma Sanford. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. So uh, as current climate activists at Friends of the Earth, what are some of your main takeaways from uh, the stories we've been hearing today? Uh, As a former social worker, I was really thrilled to hear Steph articulate how the, the movement of or the narrative in climate action has moved from science-based rhetoric to justice-based. And that really reflects that this is a fight that we're all involved in and we all need to uh, do our bit because people are really going to suffer the impacts. They already are suffering the impacts of of climate change. And it's really important to get that message out there. It's it's not just about the science anymore. It's absolutely about justice. Anna, did you have any takeaways that were um, big for you from those interviews? Oh, um, I, I just love learning kind of the yeah the the history um, about what's come to this moment, which um, really does feel like I guess a, a real peak um, of engagement for the climate movement right now. But um, it makes me think of a sort of description I've heard before for this kind of thing, where it's like um, you know it can feel like when a movement hits its real um, like peak engagement that it just exploded out of nowhere and it's actually more like kind of a a bonfire being built with sticks upon sticks upon sticks that then finally a spark gets thrown at and this is like hearing about everything that's built up to this moment which Mm. which like this current real explosion couldn't have happened without yeah, absolutely. It's such a great way to put it. I think it really put in for perspective for me um, a few weeks back when we spoke with some campaigners or you know, former people who were part of the early days of Friends of the Earth in the 1970s, and they were saying that seeing the current um, kind of climate protests and actions took them back to seeing anti-Vietnam War and anti-atomic bomb protests back in the 70s, and you know that was for them such a big moment, and it's kind of you know connects back so far. So it's really great to be able to kind of see some of those lineages. And, Anna, I'm interested, so you obviously were growing up while a lot of the work that we've been talking about was taking place. What was your understanding of climate change growing up? Uh, Well, um, I was born in 1998, so the first time I heard about climate change, I was nine um, in, like, 2007. And, yeah, literally um, all I heard about it was the kind of basic scientific explanation and um I, you know my parents were just talking about it it had been on the news like probably like one time that month or something and um uh it I just remember like my entire body seizing up in fear and just being engulfed by it and going like 
oh my god, how is uh, how is this not all anyone's focusing on? And you know that that is the kind of all encompassing way you feel about it at first. But then um, I guess um, yeah, earlier on it, it wasn't. Um, as easy to connect um, as a narrative to the present day because not as many of the um, impacts were visible. And um, I think what what I really took from those stories was about the changing of the language um, to uh, terms we have now and we just use as though we've had them forever, like climate justice and um, climate debt and that kind of thing. Um, uh, which is really important change of story to acknowledge that there is inequality of cause and of impact because pretty much all I got in primary school was like that kind of um, individual consumer like response needed like recycle more or turn the lights off when you leave the room and and it was like hang on you've just told us about this like the the most massive problem the entire planet has ever faced and and your and your our takeaway is turn off the lights <laughs> yeah 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 it puts it into a bit more of a political context and Emma you were saying you were a social worker before this so what's brought you to campaigning on climate climate change issues uh, I've always been really passionate about the environment since I was a teenager I really wish that there'd been some big uh, mainstream movement like the school strike for climate when I was 14. Wow. Um, back in August 2017, I went overseas and I spent two years volunteering around the world on organic farms and animal shelters with homeless people. And I came back at the end of October last year and I just felt appalled at the lack of climate action at the federal level in this country. And that appall turned into despair and anxiety and then I was sitting in a community hall over in uh, in Newport and watching a, a film about the Stopadani convoy. And Bob Brown said something in that documentary that really hit me in the chest. He said, don't get depressed, get active. And so maybe two weeks later, I went to my first climate protest and I went to a school strike for climate event immediately after that. And I actually heard Anna speak. And she spoke about uh, the Act on Climate Collective's current campaign regarding the Victorian government's emission reduction targets. And she talked about our potential as a community to influence uh, those targets and make sure that they were science-based and very strong. And I thought, yeah, I want to be involved in that. I used to work in politics as, as well as being a social worker. And it sounded like something that was right up my alley. So <laughs> the following Monday... I went to my first Act on Climate Collective meeting, and that was the start of December. And they welcomed me with open arms. They gave me responsibility and freedom. Within a week of joining the collective, I had my first meeting with an MP to talk about the emissions reduction targets. And I've got two more MP meetings coming up in the next week, actually, which I'm super excited about. Uh, I'm just so thrilled to be involved um, and to have the opportunity to influence and inspire not only my friends and family, but also communities and just bring in as many people as possible to the movement. And, yeah, I'm thrilled also to be part of a movement that's uh, very much driven by women. Um, I think climate justice is heavily intersectional with feminist justice and also with Indigenous justice as well. Mm, absolutely. And... 
you know, obviously um, just saying that you are both members of the current Act on Climate Collective at Friends of the Earth, which is an amazing, awesome collective getting a lot of work done at the moment. So can you see links between your current collective and the work that was talked about on the show today? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was thinking about um, Tristy talking about the um, fossil fuel um, lobbyists that I guess were maybe working more behind the scenes um, and not not as obviously attacking climate campaigners um, back in the early 2000s, but that is one of the key parts of our current campaign to fight for strong emissions reduction targets for Victoria because they are still working away um, as behind the scenes as they can now to delay the ambition um, and the action on those targets. So these are um, energy companies such as um, Alinta, AGL, Energy Australia and lobby groups like the Business Council of Australia that um, while the government, you know, is like trying to, should be thinking about what's going to be best for the state of Victoria, for the communities that are already experiencing climate impacts, um, these companies are making submissions saying basically delay any strong emissions reductions until after 2030, which as we know from the most recent UN report is like we're cactus, (laughs) it's way too late. Yeah, absolutely. And I was also thinking too about how, you know, Action on Climate is doing a lot of work to identify climate frontlines in our own communities and across, you know, Victoria, which is kind of some of that work that has been done by Friends of the Earth on the more national level. Would you say there's anything that you've heard today that's inspired you or that you'd like to try and incorporate into your work? Um, I think that, that like, uh, thing that all, all three guests talked about really of, um, the kind of Friends of the Earth um, history of always passing the mic to community members, to the people that are on the front lines, um, is something that we just have to embody in all of our work um, and certainly that Act on Climate really centres now. Um, so, yeah, in the last, like, year or so, um, our um, yeah part of our strategy has been to uh, travel around the state and find Victoria's own climate front lines um, instead of just talking about climate impacts that are far away or um, in the future. So that's involved going to, um, say, the coastal town of Inverloch, where a citizen scientist has been um, tracking sea level rise there, coastal erosion, and has um, tracked over 40 metres of coast lost to sea level rise since 2012. Um, and so those kind of stories are what is going to grab the Victorian government's um, attention and it's those voices from those communities that need to be centre. And so, yeah, it's it's really um, special to hear that that um, has like always been part of mm-hmm. Friends of the Earth's approach. Absolutely. Um, just to finish it off, Emma, you mentioned the school strike for climate as being really important to your journey and... So I'm wondering, where do you think, where do you feel like we're at with climate campaigning now and where do you think we're headed? I really feel like we're in the best possible hands in uh, those young people. As I said before, I wish that I had been surrounded at that age by uh, a whole posse of uh, equally engaged and enthusiastic and inspired young people. The next generation, they're going to, to save the world um, I look forward to it. I look forward to helping them out and supporting yeah. them. <laughs> I definitely relate to you on that feeling of wishing you had the school strikers when you're a teenager. Um, and it's so inspiring to see them out there doing their thing. So 
Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. Just like to thank all of our guests for joining us today, Steph, Tristy, and Wendy on the phone, and Anna and Emma. Thanks so much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'd also like to thank my co-producer and co-host, Megan. Oh, no problem. And thank you to you too, Em. Oh, thanks. It's been great. And thanks to everyone at 3CR who's helped us making the show. And to catch up on the conversation or listen back on anything on the series, you can check out streaming on demand via 3cr.org.au slash acting up. And it's also available as a podcast. If you're enjoying the series but think we've missed anything, um, you should get in touch via our Facebook page or give us a call at Friends of the Earth. Uh, and stay tuned because coming up we've got Jan's Tuesday Home Time. Taking us out today is Lucy Thorne with win- Window Seat. Spending the next two and a half days on this train I don't mind so much I've got a good book, plenty of thinking to do Been travelling, singing all sorts of folks Tent, my guitar, change of clothes and I've loved Spending this much time on my own So excited to be heading home Yeah, yeah, yeah.